Most fairy tales, legends, myths, and Star Wars movies begin with the phrase, once upon a time. Now this phrase signals to us, what? That we're about to hear a story, but that the story we're about to hear is not true. It's not true. Though it may be a story that we love, it may be a story that touches our hearts, it's not real. But that's not how the Apostle Matthew begins his story. Matthew starts his story of Jesus by saying, quote, this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Now, what should that signal to us? That should signal to us that Matthew is intending to tell us a story grounded in history. That the following story he is going to tell us is real. This story of Christ really happened. This is not a fairy tale. This is not a nursery rhyme. Matthew is telling us a true story. Jesus is not a metaphor. He's not a mythical figure. He is real. And his story really happened. Now, when most people read the account of Jesus' birth, they skip over the genealogy part in chapter 1, and they get right to the part about Mary and Joseph. That is a big mistake. And this morning, I'm going to show you why. Besides the fact that it grounds Jesus in history, which is super cool, but more than that, this passage of his genealogy is one of the most profound in the Bible. Let's turn now to Matthew chapter 1, if you have your Bibles. This is also at, life, at uh, ljc.life, if you have your smartphone. We'll look at Matthew chapter 1. Matthew is the first gospel. And we won't read the whole chapter. We're just going to read verses 1, 3, 5, 6, 16, and 17. Verses 1, 3, 5, 6, 16, and 17. Verse 1, Matthew writes, This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Verse 3, Judah, the father of Perez and Sarah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Verse 5, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Verse 16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Thus there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your words. Thank you for these words that bring us so much life and encouragement. 
And we pray that these words about your son would speak directly to our hearts, to our spirits this morning, so that we might be changed. Father, we have not come to check any spiritual boxes or religious boxes, but we have come to be changed by you, to know you, to dwell together as your people in your presence, in the name of your Son. Please, we ask that your Spirit would move in each of us so that we might not leave here the same way that we came in. And it's in your Son's name we pray. Amen. You and I currently live in an extremely individualistic culture, extremely individualistic culture uh, in which we recommend ourselves to others by our accomplishments, by our list of degrees, by our work experience, by our awards. But that's not at all how it was in Matthew's society, which was far more communal and family-oriented. Now, though Matthew chapter 1 might look like a simple genealogy, and it is that, but it's much more. It is also a resume. It's a resume. You see, in ancient times, it was your family, your clan, your people that you used to recommend yourself to others. It wasn't your accomplishments. It wasn't your awards. It was your family the people you were connected to that made up your resume. So a genealogy was a way of saying to the world, this is who I am. This is who I am. Now, people in ancient times tinkered with their resumes just like you and me, right? I mean, you and I don't put on our resumes all the times we were fired for doing something stupid. But we kind of leave that out, right? So we tinker with our resumes, we, we polish it up, we get it just looking, looking just nice the way we want it. Well, guess what? People in ancient times did the exact same thing. They did the exact same thing. In fact, we know that Herod the Great purged many names from his genealogy because he didn't want anyone to know he was connected to them. He didn't want anybody to realize that he was the family of some riffraff, right? So he just got his little whiteout pen made sure to exclude them from his genealogy. He's editing his resume. Uh, now, the whole purpose of a genealogy was to impress people. It was to impress onlookers uh, with the high quality and respectability of one's roots. So, what does the genealogy of Jesus look like? It is shockingly unlike any other ancient genealogy. To begin with, there are five women listed in Jesus' genealogy. Now, this may not strike modern readers as unusual, but in ancient patriarchal societies, a woman would virtually never, never be included in a genealogy let alone five of them. Women were second-class citizens, outsiders, yet here they are in Jesus' genealogy. But it's also important to see that three of the women in Jesus' genealogy were not of Jewish descent. They were Gentiles. 
We've got Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth. Now, to ancient Jews, Gentiles were considered unclean. They were riffraff, so to speak. Gentiles weren't even allowed in the Jewish tabernacle or temple to worship. Gentiles were also considered outsiders, and yet here they are in Jesus' genealogy. There's another interesting dimension to several of the people listed here. And by specifically naming them, Matthew deliberately recalls for readers some of the most scandalous, nasty, and immoral stories in the Bible. For example, he says in verse 3 that Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. If you don't know that story, Tamar tricked her father-in-law, Judah, into sleeping with her. A clear act of sin in the Bible. One of the most famous acts of sin in the Old Testament. And scandalous. And it was out of this scandalous, dysfunctional family that the Messiah would come. Also in verse 5, Matthew mentions another woman named Rahab. Rahab. Now, Rahab was not just a Gentile, but she was a prostitute. So uh, Rahab, Rahab hit the trifecta. <laughs> she was a Gentile, woman, prostitute, the outsider of outsiders. And here she is on Jesus' resume. Now, there are some famous men in this genealogy also, very famous men. And they seem to be the most messed up of them all. Let's take a look at them. Now, we've already talked about Tamar's little issue, but a full reading of the story of Judah and Tamar reveals that Judah himself is an unjust and wicked man. He is no victim. He is no hero. Judah is wicked. Now, even Abraham, the great patriarch of the faith, right? Abraham, right? Uh, Abraham did not trust in God's promises during a famine, and he fled in fear to Egypt. And then when he got to Egypt, he was so afraid to be killed by Pharaoh that he lied and said that uh, he lied to Pharaoh's men and said that his wife was his sister. And then he let Pharaoh's men take his wife into Pharaoh's palace to do God knows what with her. A real husband of the year candidate there, folks. But probably the most interesting character in this genealogy is in verse 6. And it's King David. King David. You think, okay, now we're talking. Now we're talking. This is the name you want on your resume, right? A giant slayer, a king. Well, not so much. Because Matt, the way Matthew words this is fascinating. 
Matthew says in one of the great ironic understatements of the Bible that David was the father of Solomon, whose, quote, mother had been Uriah's wife. Whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Now, isn't this odd? Isn't this odd? Why does Matthew say Solomon's mother was Uriah's wife instead of just telling us her name? Her name was Bathsheba. And Matthew is intentionally recalling a tragic and terrible chapter of Israel's history. You see, when David was a fugitive running for his life from King Saul, a group of men went out into the wilderness with him and put their lives on the line to protect him. They were called... David's mighty men. Uriah was one of those men. Years later, after David became king, he saw Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, bathing on a rooftop, and he lusted after her. He went to her house, and he slept with Bathsheba. And then David arranged to have Uriah murdered so that David could marry Bathsheba. And that's exactly what he did. Uriah was murdered, and David married Bathsheba. And one of their children was named Solomon, from whom our Messiah is descended. Matthew is being very intentional here about telling us that it was out of this horrifying and shameful incident, out of this highly dysfunctional family, and out of this deeply flawed man, that the Redeemer would come. Here then, inside Jesus' family line, is a group of people most would label as moral outsiders. Adulterers, cowards, liars, sexual perverts, murder, murderers, prostitutes. Jews wouldn't even let these people in the temple. But here they are in Jesus' resume. This all then begs the question, why? Why? Why, Matthew? <laughs> why include all of these outsiders, this riffraff on Jesus' resume? Well, I think this means at least two things. I think Matthew was trying to tell us at least two things. First, He's trying to show us that Jesus loves outsiders. He loves outsiders. People who are excluded by culture, excluded by respectable society, and even excluded by the law of God. Lawbreakers. He loves them. He loves them. And he wants to bring them in to his family. He desperately wants to bring them in. You see, it doesn't matter your pedigree. 
It doesn't matter your clan. It doesn't matter what your last name is. It doesn't matter what you have done in your life. It doesn't matter whether you're a murderer or a prostitute. Jesus, his love and his grace will cover all of that. It covers it all so that you can sit at his table as a child of the king. You're not just brought in as a servant. You are brought in as a child as a part of his family. You see, in ancient times, there was this concept of ceremonial uncleanness. Ceremonial uncleanness. If you wanted to stay holy or respectable or good, you had to avoid contact with the unholy, with the unclean. Because unholiness was considered to be contagious. It was like cooties. Right? You could get it on you. You could get unholiness on you. So you had to be very careful. If you wanted to stay holy, you had to stay away from the riffraff. You had to stay away from the unclean. You had to separate yourself from it. But that whole idea got turned upside down the day that baby was born in a manger. You see, because Jesus was so holy, he was so good, that he could not be contaminated by contact with us. In fact, the opposite was true. Instead, his holiness changed us by our contact with him. Regardless of who you are, or what you have done. No matter how morally stained you are, Jesus wants you to come to him. And he will make you clean. He will make your sins, though they are as scarlet, he will make them white as snow. White as snow. The second thing Matthew was trying to get across here is that the, quote, insiders are just as stained as everyone else. If anyone was an insider, it was King David. It's King David. He had all the world's power credentials of his day and time. He was a man, not a woman. He was a Jew, not a Gentile. He was royalty, not a peasant. Yet, as Matthew points out, even King David could only be in Jesus' line by grace. David's sins were worse than anyone else on the list. If anyone ex deserved to be excluded from this list, it was the insider, King David. But there he is. But it's only by grace. Now, most of us have a group of people in our minds that uh, we think are causing all the problems in the world. Uh, now, of course, the group we belong to is part of the solution. Of course, we're part of this. Our group's part of the solution. 
But that group out there, whew, they're causing a lot of problems. For example, uh, more conservative people will say that it's those dang sinners that are the problem. It's those dang sinners out there. They're, they're the problem. The riffraff. They, will say, they would say that uh, the immoral people are out. They're out. They're the outsiders. And the moral, upstanding people are in. They're the insiders. Now, more progressive people will say that it's those dang closed-minded bigots out there. They're the problem. And they would say that the, it's the intolerant people who are out. Intolerant people are outside. They're outsiders. And it's the tolerant, the tolerant, open-minded people who are in, the insiders. And then along comes Matthew. And he says, actually, you're all out. You are all out. All people. The moral and the immoral. The religious and the irreligious. The closed-minded and the open-minded are outsiders. Separated from God's kingdom by their sin against him. And the only way a person can get into God's kingdom is through Jesus and what he has done. It is only by grace. There is no one, no one, not even the greatest human being, not Mother Teresa, nobody who does not need the grace of Jesus Christ. But, but, there is also no one, no one who will fail to receive the grace of Jesus Christ if they ask for it. Not even the worst human being will fail to receive his grace if they ask. In Jesus Christ, prostitute and king, male and female, Jew and Gentile, moral and immoral, red and yellow, black and white, all sit down as equals at his table. Equally sinful and equally loved. Equally loved. Jesus' genealogy makes one thing crystal clear. Crystal clear. And I would guess there are some of you here today that need to hear it. And here it is. God is not ashamed of you. He is not. God is not ashamed of you. He's not ashamed of who you are now. He's not ashamed of who you were. In fact, the exact opposite is true. He adores you. He adores you. 
You are the apple of his eye. Hebrews chapter 2 says that Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. It's not ashamed. He's not ashamed of the riffraff. He's not ashamed of outsiders like you and me. You see, he loves you because of who he is, not because of who you are. It's because of who he is. Jesus' values are radically different than ours. Radically different. Our current society values power, wealth, beauty, and class. Power, wealth, beauty, and class above all. And let's be real, folks. Aren't all those things exhausting, chasing after them? Chasing after the perfect resume and the perfect school and the perfect body and the perfect spouse and the perfect kids and the perfect job and the perfect life. What a burden. What a burden. But that's what you have to do if you want to keep up with the Joneses. Jesus offers us something greater. In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavily burdened, and I will give you rest. Jesus is saying all the things the world looks for on a resume are not at all what I am looking for. All are welcome at my table. All are welcome. What is on your life resume is irrelevant. You are welcome at my table. Kings and prostitutes alike. But how did Jesus make it possible for outsiders like you and me to be brought in? How did he make it possible for us to sit with him? Here's how. No one in the cosmos had more power, wealth, beauty, and class than Jesus. No one. And what did he do with all of it? He traded it all in. For a manger, for a life of suffering and poverty. He traded it all in for a cross. Why? For you. For you. Beginning on Christmas morning, Jesus Christ became your substitute. He became your substitute, living the life you should have lived and dying the death you deserved. You see, you couldn't work, earn, or find your way into his kingdom. You could not save yourself. So Jesus accomplished your salvation for you in your place. The only thing left for you to do is repent and believe. Repent 
and believe. So, the only question for you now is, what do you believe? What do you believe? Do you believe this is a fairy tale? Do you believe this is a, just a heartwarming myth? Or do you believe that your creator really was born in a manger and died on a cross to save you? If you're a Christian here today, you believe this story is true. You believe this story is true. But maybe you just need to, this morning, remind yourself of that. You need to be reminded that this story is true and that in Jesus Christ, you can stop having to prove yourself. You can stop having to prove yourself. There's nothing to prove. You should know this morning that if you are a Christian, that it doesn't matter in the end at all whether you're a failure or a king. All you need in life is God's grace. And you have it. You have it. Weary Christian, there is rest for you in Jesus. If you're not a Christian here this morning, maybe you're seeing now that you don't have a relationship with Christ. You see that you are an outsider to his kingdom. You need to know that right this very moment, Jesus is calling you home. He's calling you home. And so won't you come? Won't you come? He saved you a seat right next to him at the head of the table. Let's pray. Father, what can we say about your son? <laughs> what a wondrous gift he is. And what a wondrous pleasure it is to serve him and to be, to be gathered here today in his name. We are grateful to be insiders. Though we are outsiders of the kingdom, we know, Father, that your son has brought us in. We did not earn it. We did not deserve it. But it's what we got anyway. Because of your son and what he has done. Thank you, Father, for Jesus. And we pray that as this season, as we things get so busy and things get so chaotic and we try to get so caught up in the things of this world, and as we look, we look to add to our life resume, that you would remind us by your spirit that we have absolutely everything we could ever need in your son. Everything in your son. Help us to rest in Jesus this Christmas season. Rest in who he is and what he has done for us. And Father, it's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.